Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. In the last episode, we talked about mold and mycotoxins, and it might not be the last time we touch on that topic because listen to this email I got from a listener, Emily. She said, I loved your podcast on mold because we actually had mold issues in our basement last summer and fall. I was cleaning in the storage room and found it growing all over and then also in the basement shower after not going down to the basement for a long time. My husband's younger brother had actually been staying down there and didn't think it was a big deal. So I cleaned it up. We got a dehumidifier, but in the weeks following, I just didn't feel good. I had a chronic sore throat and a stuffy nose. And my husband also had horrible headaches. I just had this feeling like there was something going on with the invisible mold issue down there. So my husband, father-in-law and brother-in-law all thought I was a whack job for thinking there was a problem about being concerned with issues with mycotoxins. And I should have them listen to the, the podcast. I hired a mold inspector to come and test, and I was right. Our mold levels for the air sample were through the roof in the basement, and the upstairs was only slightly elevated. So normal mold levels in a home should be around 2,000 spores per cubic meter. In our basement, our levels were almost 55,000 spores. That's 25 times the normal limit. Our upstairs was only 2,900 spores. So we wiped down every single surface and item in our basement with vinegar water. And believe me, it was a pain. We did spend the money to get the carpets and the air ducts professionally cleaned and also invested in some high quality air purifiers and upgraded the bathroom vent van. When the inspector came to retest afterward, our levels in the basement were within normal limits and the levels upstairs were way below normal. The inspector was actually impressed by how good of a job we did cleaning it on our own. After cleaning, the basement came down to right at 2,000 spores, and our upstairs was all the way down to 100 spores. So just as a reminder, the upstairs or the downstairs was 55,000 spores. Now it's at 2,000 after the cleaning, and the upstairs was around 2,900 spores, and now it was down to less than 100 spores. So pretty impressive. Emily continues, we probably won't retest unless we have another spot where we find mold, but we continue to run our air purifiers and humidifiers. So I'm hopeful that the basement will be fine after this. They tested for 20 different kinds of molds, and there was just a few kinds that were causing our issues, mostly penicillin and aspergillus, which are caused due to dampness, which is exactly how our issue started. So you understand how this can be a big deal. Emily finishes with, my husband's headaches have gone away for the most part and my issues are better too, but I still think I'm recovering from the exposure. We're lucky that we live upstairs and the issue was mostly in the basement, so our exposure was fairly limited. Anyway, as you mentioned on the episode, it's much more prevalent than people realize and I can attest to that. 
I do really enjoy hearing from listeners and hearing your sentiments, and I really enjoyed this email especially. So just wanted to share. Thanks so much, Elne, for sharing that. And today we're on to the show. The word itself, you know, our word live, not a coincidence, it sounds like that. There's some common word origins. And the Greek word for it, hepaticos, meant life. You know, in our culture, we think about the heart as the seat of emotion, kind of metaphorically, or as the brain as a seat of consciousness. But but yeah, up until the recent past, all early cultures thought about all those things being, the, the, the liver being the seat of all of that. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life podcast. This is your host, Krista Bigler, private practice integrative nutritionist, helping people across the U.S. reverse digestive issues, eczema, and autoimmunity via phone and video consult. To learn more, visit lessstressednutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Dr. Alan Christensen. Dr. Christensen is a naturopathic endocrinologist who focuses on thyroid function, adrenal health, and metabolism. He's a New York Times bestselling author whose books include The Metabolism Reset Diet, The Adrenal Reset Diet, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Thyroid Disease. Dr. Christensen regularly appears on national media like Dr. Oz, The Doctors, and The Today Show, and and he's a prolific <laughs> unicyclist. Welcome to the show, Dr. Christensen. Hey, Krista. Glad to be here with a fellow unicyclist. Not a common thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's a Midwesterner. I let him know that even though it's May here, it's snowing and he's definitely not jealous in his current Scottsdale weather, but that's okay. <laughs> so today, uh, you know, as much as we're, we had fun talking about common ties with unicycling and, and other things, today we're talking about another thing that we both really love is the liver. And I really think, I, I often say to people when I'm teaching them how the liver works. I wish people would talk about this more often and talk about how this is such an amazing, incredible organ that does so much. And I just want people to understand it. So it's, it's not trendy, right? So maybe we'll talk about this later. I had someone recently reach out to me and say, hey, I, I think I need a detox. And I'm like, ooh, loaded question. I mean, like, I can't really summarize liver stuff in a soundbite, but let's talk. <laughs> and I knew her well enough to say, I think it's a little deeper than that and some other things. Um, but let's talk to Dr. Christensen about this. So how did you get started on this path, um, right? So you're a naturopath now, but I know that you started going to medical school. And what changed? Well, I, I attended medical school that, that did cover natural medicine as well. So I did have that plan going into it. And my own experience was such that, you know, food, nutrition, um, lifestyle things just completely changed everything for me. And it was important for me to go into medicine to be able to, you know, help others facilitate a similar change. And I knew that those were critical parts of it. So I was close to attending just a conventional medical school only, but the closer I got, the more I realized that my my interests and passions in nutrition wouldn't really be able to be fulfilled, even if I had training and good intentions. So yeah, I had to make corrections to include that as part of it. Right, for sure. So then you ended up in naturopathic school. And I think there's a story you talk about how, and sometimes people aren't necessarily familiar um, with either the separation or, or how these things are similar from other doctors. Can you describe how maybe what you focus on is a little bit differently if you want? Yeah, for sure. So my big goal was to really do the valid parts of medicine as far as technology and evidence and diagnosis and, you know, really getting to causative factors of illness. But I knew that lifestyle and nutrition were critical parts of that. So when I, when I learned about naturopathic medicine, it was exactly what I was looking for. And we're part of a pretty solid 200-year lineage with our current uh, current nomenclatures and our current names. 
And we draw back further than that from these European spa traditions of medicine. So back back in the uh, late Middle Ages, people were just horribly sick because of the conditions in cities. And they would wear these restrictive garments. Uh, their, their food was, you know, highly... We talk about processed food now. So, you know, hot crossed buns. So the gold hot crossed buns, the gold was was arsenic. They would use this literal arsenic on the buns for coloration. Mm. So... Yeah, the level of refined toxic things in the food was just ridiculous. And, you know, city life was polluted. So these groups of doctors would take people out in the countryside and just give them fresh food from the gardens, have them, you know, wear clothes that were comfortable and get some fresh air and sunlight and use maybe some herbal medicine here and there and just cure them from all sorts of things. So that was the that was the main the main early influence of the of the profession. Yeah. So going back even further before medical school, you mentioned, hey, I really found diet and lifestyle to be an important part of my own life. So let's go back to the Midwest where you grew up. (laughs) And you talk about, so when I say liver stuff, the title of this podcast doesn't necessarily focus on that because sometimes people don't realize like, oh, your liver is affecting thyroid and metabolism and all these other things, right? So talk to us about your own little bit of a health history there. Um, what, how did you make changes? Uh, like what, what was the problem and how did you make changes? And that kind of brought you into being interested in the medical field. Yeah. You know, the problems were emergent right away with birth. Uh, I had complications secondary to cerebral palsy and seizures, and it manifested as just a real lack of coordination and ability to have a signal go from my brain to my lower legs, especially. And, you know, my first, my first portion of childhood, like up to a little before adolescence, I don't know, I didn't think too much of it. I didn't really know anything different. But around that time, I started putting on a lot of weight. And the the fact that I was limited in what I could do physically, yeah, I never knew otherwise. So I was just kind of used to being able to do some things and not other things. But uh, around around adolescence, the whole social world was looming large. And I was I was not winning that game, you know, quite the opposite. I was a goofy kid that was clumsy and getting fatter and fatter. And yeah, um, I think that I think that kids might be a little bit better about these things now, but I, there was fewer heavy people back then. And there was really no idea about that. It wasn't okay to make fun of them. It was just expected. So uh, I had some dark times from that. And it, it drove me into, I was already a natural reader and I'd love to read things and research things. And so I thought, you know what, let me start just trying to figure out if I can change my health in some way and improve upon this. So I dug up all the health books I could find in the library and read through lots of them and, you know, synthesized some common themes and just set forward a path of changing my diet. Um, first few steps were I added in a little more protein. We, My parents had some protein powders from a company that one of our grandparents was with. And I added that for a regular breakfast. I cut out sugar, cut out bread, not really clear on why, but those things and started exercising on a regular basis. And, you know, lots of lots of fits and starts, but stuck with it. And yeah, life just completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I found that given enough time and patience with my body, I had some athletic talent and some good endurance that was behind all that. And I just came to really love love movement and activity and 
yeah, lost weight, felt better. It was quite a, quite a change. Yeah, learning to unicycle was probably kind of like a, a major accomplishment after the initial <laughs> uncoordination. So um, <laughs> we always say it doesn't take a it takes more tenacity and persistence than it does uh, balance. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So the people on this, the listeners to this podcast, love a good nerdy nerdy discussion. So let's talk nerdy about let's talk about our favorite. I don't know if it's your favorite organ. It's my favorite organ. I'd love to know what your like what you think the most important organs are. Let's talk about liver. How important is it? Oh boy, um, what are the what are the categories of importance? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would put it mm-hmm. I would put it up there pretty high. I mean, if the word itself, you know, our word "live," not a coincidence. It sounds like that. There's some common word origins, and the Greek word for it, "hepatikos," meant life. You know, in our culture, we think about the heart as the seat of emotion, kind of metaphorically, or as the brain as a seat of consciousness, but but yeah, up until the recent past, all early cultures thought about all those things being the, the the liver being the seat of all of that. I love it. I love it. So, I think right now we don't think. Sometimes when I try to talk to people about this, and they're sort of unfamiliar, like they haven't done a lot of reading on their own. Like the other day, I was going through some lab work, and we were looking at a number. It's called beta glucuronidase, and it sounds like a big word. And I say it's just one of those little markers that tells us that maybe the liver's not doing things up to speed or up to par. And so then the person says, "Does that mean that my liver has a problem?" So in the way we normally think, when we think about this, we think of it kind of negatively, right? We have a fairly negative connotation on, "Oh, my liver needs support," but. It's this major organ, right? It's a very, very large organ. So why wouldn't it always need support? But let's talk about maybe some outward signs that the liver wants some help. What do you think, Dr. Christensen? Um, maybe because I, I think we talk about, like, I, I I enjoy listening to you talk about this because I talk about it differently than you. And so um, I think that's awesome. So talk to me about when people, what are some signs and symptoms people have where you know that their liver would love some attention? You know, signs and symptoms, in terms of how someone would experience that, to me, I think about how the liver regulates metabolism and how, if it's working well, your your appetite, your, your body weight, and your energy levels just are good. You know, they just sort themselves out, and you don't have to put a huge amount of effort or thought into that. Those things just sync up, and you've got good, steady energy. You know, you get hungry at mealtimes. You're satisfied at a reasonable point, and you're not famished or having crazy cravings and that allows you to have a healthy body size so yeah if those things don't just sync up well on their own then the liver is one of the first things we think about as being contributing to that yeah and i think about sometimes some other things right so i know this person right now who says I used to be able to drink alcohol and now I just get really sick. I'm that's kind of an extreme example, right? But that's kind of a clear, very clear cut almost where it's like, Hey, I don't think that's working very well. Um, I work with a lot of skin issues. So I'll be curious if you, how often you see skin manifesting in in liver, but I think it's a really key piece because if the liver, um, says, Hey, I can't tolerate that. Then the skin would be another big organ of elimination that says, Hey, I've got this liver. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or I always think like strong smells sometimes for certain people. Now, some people, seem to not have a much of a sense of smell, but uh, definitely people. And I mean, this was a big thing for me as well. So really strong sense of smell, something I thought, oh, I think this is just coming on in pregnancy, but never went away. So those are all great things. Super relevant. You know, also we can see things like pain patterns on the right side behind it. Lots of digestive issues can relate to that. You know, autoimmunity can be driven highly by that. Mm -hmm. It's funny. We think about the, the gut as being where the world, you know, interacts with their body. And it's really more so the liver. You know, the, the gut is 
a tube and something being in a tube is not really in your body until it enters your bloodstream. And yeah. when it does enter your bloodstream, the first the first stop is the liver. Right. I actually really agree with that. Right. So I'm a huge fan of us, you know, the gut being a a topic because it's bringing awareness to how nutrients are absorbed and other things. Mm -hmm. But I think the liver is equally, if not more important than the gut discussion. Right. And so I always tell people, I say, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a broken record. All I want to do is support your gut and your liver (laughs) and your adrenals. Right. It's just depending on how it's manifesting in your body specifically. So I like that you talked about pain in certain areas. Um, so actually on that note, like let's talk about what taxes our liver's ability because inherently we should work, right? Like our body is awesome and it should work well. So how do we know, like, what are things that are that are taxing its ability to work, um, overall? Well, it's playing a lot of roles in regulating hormones, balancing blood sugar, detoxification purposes, regulating the immune system. But the thing that strains it the most is its job in regulating our fuel. So I talk about fuel as being, you know, carbs, fats, even ketones, um, alcohol to some extent. And we intake that at certain points, but we burn that constantly. So your liver is always taking it in and letting it out. And that's, that's the biggest thing that strains it the most. If there's ever too much or that the types are such to where they strain it further or it's lacking some of the micronutrients to help it utilize that, that's what causes it to generate the largest amount of inflammatory free radicals is just just fuel utilization. Talk more about that, because I know that you have a kind of a maybe a controversial view in today's trendy society about talking about ketones. I can't remember exactly what you say about this, but you say, you know, it doesn't really want to use ketones. It's trying to do it would like to do something else first. Right. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, your liver cannot use ketones for fuel. It's one part of the body that just can't make use of them at all. And people think about ketones as something that are formed when your body is burning fat. And it's really the exact opposite. It's when your body is unable to burn fat that you convert fat into ketones. And some tissues can use it, but the liver cannot. But but yeah, ketones, carbs, and, and fats, they're all a common fuel source in that they're all made from oxaloacetate. So you have the fuel generating part of all three of those macromolecules ends up being identical, but the liver just can't happen to make use of it when it's in the package of ketones. Okay. Let's talk about how this works. So you ingest fuel, you ingest food. What happens next? Let's get to the point. Let's talk about where things go wrong so we can understand like the linear picture basically of how when things are disturbed or interrupted or not working appropriately, metabolism and these other functions get out of balance. Yeah, the main common thread when we see problems with the liver is that the liver normally stores fuel as some mixture of glycogen and triglycerides. And triglycerides yield a lot of energy, but they can't burn themselves without the help of like kindling for a log. And that's the glycogen. And the liver can get the wrong ratios of glycogen to triglyceride. And in the extreme, we call this fatty liver disease or steatohepatitis. But at milder levels that are not at a disease state, it still makes it to where the liver can still take in fuel and store it, but it's harder and harder for it to reverse the process and use that fuel for energy. And that's where someone you know, may even be eating reasonable amounts, but their storage is working so much better than their breakdown of fuel that they gain weight easily and they're just too tired all the time. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about that concept because people think that fatty liver disease is something that happens to someone else. But this is a modern day epidemic that people don't really know about. Um, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, it is so insanely common. And just, just the versions that the obvious diagnosable types of it are affecting probably at least 30 or more percent of American adults. But we know that this is one of those tip of the iceberg things to where the normal diagnostic criteria do not show up until the disease is rather progressed. You know, one study suggested that when people have healthy liver, apparently healthy liver function, and they're going to donate liver tissue to a loved one, they have to get tested to make sure they don't have abnormal liver blood levels, they have a normal liver ultrasound, and that they're not diabetic. And if they pass all those steps, then they have to do a liver biopsy to make absolutely sure they've got good liver tissue to share when they're donating. And in those cases, healthy people, when they're screened that thoroughly, over 38% are found to have advanced fatty liver disease. So we know it's much more common than people expect. Right. And it's not alcoholic, right? This is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, right? NAFLD or however you want to say it. It's a kind of <laughs> yeah. a long, long acronym there, right? So you know, the, go ahead. Well, just one quick thing about the alcohol, alcoholic part. This is kind of funny, but I was just speaking at an event last weekend and Someone talked about having fatty liver, and they, they did consume some alcohol beforehand. And people think about alcoholic fatty liver, meaning someone who's an alcoholic. And that's normally we only use the word alcoholic in the context of someone who abuses alcohol. But it's not, that's not how it's used in this context. So alcoholic fatty liver, sure, that can happen if someone's an alcoholic, but it only takes an intake of an average of 20 grams of alcohol per day on average to be categorized as having alcoholic fatty liver. And that's because even small amounts of alcohol can really escalate this process if someone's prone to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, not what we wanted to hear, right? Actually, on that topic, though, uh, to talk about alcohol in general, uh, I think I heard you talking about how alcohol is not really a health food like sometimes we say it is, right, with the resveratrol, etc. Um, I want to say uh, the conversation was that we really see it related to breast cancer. And I feel like sometimes I see that manifesting, right? When we look at hormone, when we look at the actual how hormones are being metabolized, right, on testing, sometimes we see this estrogen going down the cancerous pathway, right? The I believe it's the 4-OH pathway of estrogen, which is really contributes to breast cancer, right? Which is alcohol would really inhibit you know, the process of clearance, right? So it would really build up the breast cancer um, relationship. So sometimes I think like reading into, for me, when I see that stuff on the studies, like, hey, if alcohol is increasing breast cancer, why would that happen, right? Is it because we're inhibiting the ability to get the liver's ability to eliminate extra estrogen? Do you think that would be you the know reason? The data sure can be. The data on alcohol linked to cancer is really solid. The biggest optical illusion, so to speak, about alcohol has been the thought that it lowers mortality risk. And a lot of that seems to be from cardiovascular disease, but it was thought to be just overall mortality was lower. And where that came from was a lot of people plotted graphs that showed alcohol intake relative to total mortality. And what they saw is that those that had you know zero alcohol intake tended to have a higher risk of mortality than those that had a low alcohol intake of a couple of drinks per day. And then if you went higher and higher, like three drinks per day or more, the mortality risks got higher again. So the thought was that there's a sweet spot to where a little bit is better than none. But what further researchers realized was that those that don't drink are really two different groups of people. So one group of people just chooses not to drink. You know, they just don't want to. It's a religious concern or, or whatever else. It's their choice. And another group of those who don't drink medically are not allowed to drink. 
they're they're on some medication. Maybe they've had liver disease or kidney disease, or maybe they abused alcohol in the past. And so some people are, are told and prescribed not to. And the problem that skews the data is those who are prescribed not to drink, you know, they've had health challenges. And so they have a higher mortality risk than other populations do. Not because they're not drinking, but because of the reason that made them not eligible to drink. That makes them more apt to have early mortality. So if you pull those people out, and now you only compare people whose alcohol intake is, is voluntary. You know, they, they medically could drink. No one's telling them they can't, but they just choose not to. So those people, they, they do have a lower risk of mortality at zero than they do at one or two drinks per day. So yeah, so the beneficial effects really disappear when one thinks about the data from that perspective. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the liver being the chameleon that it is, right? Because apparently we can donate part. This is actually... I still struggle with this concept <laughs> that something could be, kind of regenerate this well and grow back. Um, so uh, the liver is can regenerate if you donate part of the liver. Will you talk to us about this? Actually, and if you happen to know, I mean, I used to work in kidney disease, and so we trans, you know, you transplant kidneys, and so that seems more obvious and, and relevant. I think about the liver having different parts and it doing different parts. Do you know what part is donated? That's just my nerdy question. Um, and so if you don't know for sure, that's fine. But let's talk about how the liver is a chameleon. Well, I do know, and it does not have different parts. So the hepatocytes are even throughout the whole tissue. So there's a certain mass of tissue that's given, but not so much parts. You've got some external parts that are distinct, such as the gallbladder and the biliary ducts. But the liver itself is rather homogenous in that all, all parts, all hepatocytes share similar roles. And yeah, someone can donate up to 70, 80% of liver tissue, and their remaining portion can fill in that gap and grow back again quite well. But it can't grow back if it's been damaged because of other reasons, right? Like, what if there's not how, what if we have this common non alcoholic quality of liver disease situation? Can you reverse that and can you restore your liver? So, there's a progression past that to be really precise called NASH, and that's non alcoholic steatohepatitis. That's where it's scarred and fibrosed. And that point, it's not so much reversible. But before that stage where it is fatty liver, it is entirely reversible. So, so yes, it is, it is still changeable then. Okay. And how do you reverse it? Well, the trick is to get rid of the fat that's trapped between the cells. And that was the whole focus of the, the program that was the origin of the metabolism reset diet. Mm-hmm. So basically a 28-day process of providing necessary nutrients, but restricting extra fuel intake and then keeping blood sugar steady. Right. Let's talk about that a little bit more in detail, just because I like to talk about the physiology of it. Now you've talked about the glycogen stores and triglycerides, right? But let's talk, can you, can you, I don't know if it's hitting a dead horse here, but let's talk about a little bit more on how blood sugar is affected by what's going on in the liver. Very much so. You know, and this is a funny thing. So like diabetes, uh, we know that if someone has high morning fasting blood sugar, that's one of the ways we define diabetes. If they're consistently above 126, and also we see people that have high postprandial, you know, after meal blood sugar levels. If they consistently spike well over 200 after a meal, that's also, a, that's not a diagnostic sign, but that's a warning sign towards diabetes. And what we thought in the past was that that high blood sugar after a meal was some combination of a meal that was too rich in total carbohydrate, you know, too rich in refined carbohydrate, or just that person's poor response to carbohydrate. And what we now know is that in those who were in the continuum of diabetes, the vast majority, more than 80% of their glucose elevations after a meal 
aren't from the meal. They have nothing to do with the meal. They're the body releasing that from the liver. So the emerging term is leaky liver. And even morning fasting blood sugar, think about that, that's morning fasting. So throughout the night, your liver works to keep your blood sugar from dropping too much as you sleep. Mm -hmm. And when morning sugar is high, that's also the liver overcompensating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's good because sometimes we do see, I'll, I have this, I think that testing blood sugar in the morning can be a nice barometer, regardless if someone is has a reason to, have, they think they have a reason to or not, right? So sometimes it's kind of, um, this is all about awareness, right? Really? So it's trying to help people understand that, hey, when you've got some blood sugar imbalances, that doesn't necessarily mean diagnosed diabetes. This is like, are you hangry? in the afternoon, right? Are you not sure. satisfied with meals? Like so many people, so many of us have are very familiar with what unstable blood sugar looks like, right? Um, and I know you talk about metabolic flexibility and how improving the liver and resetting the metabolism helps with metabolic flexibility. Tell us what that word means. Yeah, so that's that's a cool concept. When When your body's healthy, when your liver can regulate fuel well, you know, you can eat a little more, a little less and do okay. Uh, if you have a bit extra, your body can store that in ways to where you can just retrieve that pretty easily as energy in the future. It doesn't have to be a ton of extra weight gain or fluid retention. And also the opposite. If you miss a meal or have a bit less on some other day, your body's got fuel stores it taps into and your energy stays steady. You don't have to crash and have cravings and, and feel awful. Now, of course, you still need food. You know, you can't go on no food forever. And of course, also anyone could overdo and, and gain. But people often lose that level of flexibility. They find that if they're a tiny bit above some threshold, they they put on pounds. Like, you know, pounds overnight, they can change by that much, which doesn't really make sense otherwise. And on the other hand, if they go down by even a speck on their food, then they're, they're craving, they're exhausted, they're getting brain fog. So it's regaining that leeway so your body can just self-regulate your energy better again. Mm -hmm. So the tricky thing here, Dr. Christensen, is that when we talk about some of the symptoms of what's going on with the liver, it feels like it overlaps into possible other areas, right? I mean, it's it's very possible when we talk about this. It like it could be the liver, or maybe it's another thing, or maybe the liver is always involved. Um, do you rely on basic liver enzyme panel? Like, do you look at that lab work, and how do people know to look between the gray area on their liver enzyme? So this isn't just a normal, regular, old, typical, everyday blood work that your doctor does, right? You have these liver enzymes. Mm -hmm. um, are there any other things that you like to look at or do you like to teach people just to look at the gray area of those? Well, they're really helpful. They're, they're good tests. And what they mean is they're the rate of liver cell death. And some is normal, but too much is just an inflammatory liver. So what there's strong data on, however, is that within the normal range, women especially can have problems and not be elevated. So most labs say that you're normal up to high 30s. I see some labs say as high as low 60s to be normal. And to be precise now, I'm talking about the ALT, which is one of the two main liver enzymes. AST is the other. It's a little less specific, and it can also be skewed by just you know hard workout, you know muscle tissue breakdown. Mm -hmm. But ALT is more liver specific. So if you're a woman, the threshold is 19. And liver specialists agree that if you're above that, there's something wrong. And, and barring some medication reaction or a hidden infection, we think about fatty liver as the main culprit. 
Uh, guys get a little more leeway there. It's up to 30. But still, those are numbers within the normal range, and they're well-established as being significant. So do you think, I've just with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease being kind of prevalent, quite prevalent, right? And do you think that, how are we figuring out I mean, it's biopsy, right? That you're that you're uh, diagnosing that, and that's, unless they've changed it, I guess I don't really know. Um, so, what's tipping people off to have testing to find out if they're having fatty liver? Is it no, these numbers? Cases, in most cases, they're not. Those those numbers are not commonly gone by. Mm-hmm. I actually see a lot of cases to where people will have just blatantly elevated liver enzymes, and doctors disregard that and say it's not significant and not to even pursue it further. So, yeah. And to be really precise, the biopsy, that's the one solid way to rule it out. So in most cases, when someone does see elevated or, as I mentioned, those high normal or even like in the case of a woman, even moderate enzymes and a lack of an explanation, a good step after that is to do an ultrasound. Now, an ultrasound test, it also will not rule out fatty liver. So you can have a normal ultrasound and still have fatty liver, but it's good because there are some people to where the fatty liver is more progressed than you would guess based upon their enzyme levels. So if there's more than 30% fibrosis between the cells, that can show up on an ultrasound, and that does then open up some different treatment steps. But in terms of the diagnosis, it's generally a presumptive diagnosis. You're seeing some sign of liver inflammation, no other clear cause. You do want to rule out other causes like hepatitis or reactions to medications. You know, funny thing, Krista, I've seen a lot of people to where they've had elevated or high normal liver enzymes. And the sole cause was just taking too darn many supplements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they had to do nothing more than cut back on their pill count and their liver could get better. Because of the extras, right? Like, so things work in synergy and your liver has to clear all of this, right? So even though we think of things not being dangerous, sometimes just the sheer volume of what's going on and what it has to exactly. work through. Yeah. Yeah, and I've had that happen to where there's no one of those supplements that you'd say, oh, that could be hard on your liver, but just the sheer quantity of that can be different. Yeah, I think the thing that is going to come more and more to light that's not being discussed a ton right now, I mean, depending on whose circle you're in, but it's just the excipients or the extra added, like the extra things in supplements, right? So always high quality is what we're looking for, but a lot of times there's always little extra carriers. And I don't know if we've ever, I, I feel like I'd seen some recent data on this about like, this is really the problem that we're not factoring in sometimes is that we're getting a lot of extra stuff. Yeah, maybe. I think a lot of folks take many more pills than, than they need. And right. yeah, I think yeah. beer could be better. Quality, et cetera. So let's get to, um, actually, one thing before the, before let's talk about improving liver function. Let's pretend that someone has elevated ALT, this liver enzyme, right? Because AST is less specific, just to reiterate here. And let's say they do something intentional, right? Like I always say, hey, let's go on an intentional experiment on purpose to see if we can shift things. Do you have, do you feel that it's reasonable to expect an improvement in ALT after doing something like a four week reset like you propose? Oh, very much so. Yeah, that's, yeah, we, we evolved this from a protocol that we use for treating diabetes and we're quite comfortable taking people who are diabetic and on multiple medications and having them start this protocol under clinical guidance and stop their medications on day one mm-hmm. and within four weeks seeing them in the non-diabetic range. Now, of course, type 1 diabetes is different, and there's a few other considerations, but by and large, we were comfortable with that. And we started seeing more about the tie-in between liver and diabetes and the prevalence of fatty liver. So yeah, we've tracked liver enzymes and liver function, and 
even changes on ultrasound, we can see change uh, over the course of that time frame consistently. Mm-hmm. One thing we didn't talk about before we dive into improving liver function was related to thyroid. And this is such a hot thing for a lot of people in one of your main specialty areas, right? So talk to me about how the liver influences the thyroid. You know, yeah, great question. It's a, a two-way street. So the health of the thyroid affects the liver and also vice versa. The liver in general is a big part of, of fine-tuning all the hormones in circulation. You know, your glands, like the thyroid, they make a lot of hormone, and in general, they make much more than we need, and a lot of what they release, they do so in an inactive state. So your liver has the job of storing, uh, binding up with proteins, and then also converting and breaking down hormones to help regulate the levels at the, at the tissue need. So if it's not working optimally, then sometimes those can be altered. And then vice versa, if there are shortcomings in thyroid output, that deficit of thyroid hormone can also make the liver less able to to burn fuel at a rate that's sustainable for the body. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. So let's talk about how we help the liver improve what it does best, which is everything. <laughs> uh, so how, from a macroscopic perspective, do you improve liver function? Well, you've got to make sure that it's fueled and fed and given the building blocks it needs but it's not having to work too hard. And again, its main work is just processing carbs and fats and and even ketones. And the things that it needs include essential amino acids, certain micronutrients, and a real steady, gentle supply of glucose in the bloodstream. So yeah, so toward those goals, we made a program that was really simple. It wasn't like a lot of complex rules to follow. And it contained a decent amount of essential amino acids, but it contained a low amount of carbs and fat overall. And also we wanted to include good amounts of resistant starch so that even with there being a low intake of total carbohydrate, there could still be a steady, even supply of glucose, which the liver needs to help rebuild its glycogen supplies. Mm-hmm. So without a good food foundation, you cannot out-supplement to improve your liver is what you just said there, right? <laughs> exactly. Yep. You said it much better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we've got this nice little balance of food sources. Are there any particular foods that you call like liver power foods that you recommend that people have more of? Boy, lots of great ones. One that many that you do hear about, but one you don't hear about as much are the APACA vegetables. Um, lots of data on their effects upon the liver's secretion of its own internal antioxidants like superoxide dismutase and also their effects upon regulating uh, slow phase two metabolism. So these include parsnips, uh, parsley, also carrots, but APA say really helpful vegetables to have abundant amounts of. Love it. APACA vegetables, parsley, carrot, carrots, and parsnips. And I love parsnips. Those are, <laughs> if people aren't eating, I mean, actually all of those. Yesterday I made basil pesto. And I oh. usually make parsley pesto because it's so huh? much hardier, right? Like the, I'm good at killing things or, you know, basil is kind of flaky. It doesn't really live for a long time. So I had a bunch of basil leftover. So I made basil pesto and I thought this is really missing something probably because I like parsley pesto so much better. It's got such a Richard. It's a great way to get a lot of parsley in is my point in saying this. Cilantro pesto is fun too. Mm, yes, definitely. That is a good one. Um, talk, let's talk about nutrient supplements, like not necessarily saying like, Hey, you need these things, but let's talk about nutrients, um, from that perspective. So we talked about macronutrients a bit, um, that the liver needs. And so that's a key, but let's talk about micronutrients that the liver needs. 
Yeah, there's the one that it ones that it need and the ones that counter its effects. Uh, one of the big ones that can be a problem is folic acid. Mm. So there's there's a category of B vitamins called folates, and there's a synthetic analog called folic acid. Mm-hmm. And there's a good chunk of people that have difficulties with methylation. Mm-hmm. Um, super brief aside, uh, there's more arguments now that methylation efficacy has little to do with methylation gene status, that MTHFR gene status is mm. not that great of a predictor either way of someone's methylation function. But yeah, many people have problems with that. And if they do, folic acid ends up making that work much more poorly. So that's a that's a good micronutrient for people to avoid if they're struggling with their liver health. And instead they should do folate. Yeah, naturally occurring folates in food or in supplementation, uh, naturally occurring methylfolates are, are quite differently metabolized. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about MTHFR because occasionally people come to me and say, they're kind of freaking out. They say, I have MTHFR. And I say, well, that is actually not at all a death sentence. So let's <laughs> talk about what's actually going on. Um, but, you know, I, I just kind of say a lot more people seem to have issues with that gene than don't. So I like what you said there about um, we're still always learning <laughs> about. Well, and one, one more wrinkle along those lines, there was a December 2018 paper in which they looked at direct-to-consumer genetic tests. And they're looking at a couple of the of the SNPs, including like the, the BRCA gene and a couple of others. And they analyzed people's re- results from the direct-to-consumer tests, like like 23andMe and a few others. And they also checked them with clinical pathology laboratories to see what their status truly was. Mm-hmm. And what they found is that for the five SNPs that they compared, uh, 40% of the readings that were obtained were not correct. So there's no reason to think that these concerns would not apply to the other you know, thousands of SNPs that are looked at by direct-to-consumer uh, gene tests. Right. So yeah, upwards of 40% of the findings may not be relevant. Right. So to clarify, you mean they were comparing genetic SNPs. So like pretend you have VDR, which is going to say, oh, you might be low vitamin D. This kind of maybe not a great example, but um, so maybe you're going to not do well with vitamin D, but then they check their actual status of micronutrients. Is that what you mean? Are they comparing two different different, um, genetic tests? No, they're comparing accurate laboratory genetic tests against consumer genetic tests. Got it. And what they saw is that the consumer tests were erroneous 40% of the time. Oh, yeah, that is even more disturbing <laughs> than the <laughs> than the uh, than the situation I was describing because I what would you say, were describing what you were describing is a huge concern as well is how much does the gene status predict the gene expression right. and there's tons of disconnect between those two things. But even a step further back, you know, are the gene tests even accurate? And it appears they are not. Yeah, that is concerning. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for throwing that this way. Um, (laughs) I would say that I'm a huge proponent of looking what current micronutrient status is long before anyone considers genetics, unless they happen to have that information anyway, then it's fun to kind of dig into it a little bit further and maybe maximize things. But it's pretty concerning if it might not be accurate. But again, that's just sort of information that we don't take as gospel, right? So it's like, okay, great. Like, yeah, maybe I don't make EPA and DHA beautifully, but that was kind of obvious with this dry skin I have, or like maybe I just need to eat more fatty fish, you know, which are good, decent guidelines for everyone, regardless. I've never, I've never seen anyone that had awesome omega status um, the first time. So, you know, I've always asked the genetic testing. I, I always ask people, is there a time in which you would say, per your genes, you should not exercise and get enough sleep at night and eat broccoli, or, right. or per your genes, you should 
drink alcohol, you know, in excess and you should smoke. I mean, there's never cases where genes say something that you wouldn't say either for or against anyways. Yeah, that's a good point. I like that. That's a good point. Okay, so let's talk about the everyday stuff that we sort of like don't pay attention to the lifestyle influences. What else is commonly contributing to liver load? Well, you know, a big thing there is just how much we have to to process throughout the day, environmental toxicants. So the fuel is first and foremost, but then toxicants come up second. And and with those, you know, it's important that we do think about just all of our sources, but I think people put a lot of weight on some of the more minor contributors. Um, you, you know, indoor air is probably our largest total contributor to our toxic burden by far. And actually, on that note, I um, indoor air does... Uh, and I, is it bleach? Actually, this this is kind of interesting because we didn't really give full lip service to the nutrients that really affect the liver. Oh, but let's sure. talk about glutathione for a second and how that relates to air and how it relates back to nutrients. Oh, for sure. So yeah, that's one of the more important endogenous antioxidants the liver makes. And I've seen data that uh, use of household cleaning products that are bleach containing can be a, a big factor on both liver liver health, but also respiratory health. Uh, lots of data on people being more prone to chronic obstructive pulmonary disease by, by using bleaches in the environment. And the lungs and the liver, they share that pathway in that they produce glutathione as a protective molecule. So yeah, so so bleach, you know, chlorine dioxide, it's a highly unstable compound that releases a free singlet oxygen on contact with the air. And that singlet oxygen is great for breaking down any organic substance like a contaminant, but that's also the ultimate free radical for our lungs and liver to have to process. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I always say glutathione is one of my favorite antioxidants. I call her the boss at the liver. And so <laughs> when I see glutathione looking low on one kind of method of um, testing, then I always say, hey, where are you spending your glutathione? And so now I can add, hey, you know, one more reason for you to um, maybe swap things out with the bleach versus other things, right? So how are you spending oh. it, right? It's, it's all all the things that you're touching in, in your life throughout the day. Like something is spending it something Somewhere. I always talk about like, um, I feel like the things that we do routinely day after day after day are the things that we have to look at, right? So like, I always get up and brush my teeth and do this and take a shower with these products and make a cup of coffee. So like, why wouldn't I want a good version of all those things? Right? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, what else? So let me let me bridge back to the nutrients that our liver likes. So what else do you think our liver loves? Or what else do we know that our liver needs? It needs workers at the factory, right? So glutathione yeah. might be the boss, but you need other workers. Yeah, so really every nutrient is relevant. There's some that are more commonly lacking in modern diets than others. Uh, magnesium is a big one that is critical for tons of reactions. People can fall behind in far too easily. So let's talk about, let me draw some distinction here really quick, because I think when people talk about detoxes, quote unquote, we think about herbal cleanses and other things. And so I like people to understand how the liver, like, so the liver is this waste plant and glutathione might be the boss at the plant. I mean, that's just how I say it. And then you've got these workers there, the magnesium and the other nutrients. But then how, what, how, where do herbs fit in? Um, Are they the tools that sometimes these nutrients, like, how do we fit those into our analogy? So how do you, I always say like, you can't just use herbs if you don't have the nutrients to do the, the grunt work. So how would you say this? Sure. So herbs have varying, varying effects. Uh, most most herbal detox products are really just laxatives, though. They just make someone poop a lot and seem like something dramatic is happening. Mm-hmm. But 
herbs can have hepatoprotectant effects, uh, such as such as milk thistle. The odd thing about that is uh, milk thistle's effects are now known to be more hormetic than anything. So what that means is it's just like a really mild liver toxin, <laughs> mm. and that makes the liver reactive. So it's it's now thought to be contraindicated in cases of inflammatory states. Mm. And there's other herbs that act as cholagogues or choleretics. They can change the viscosity or the volume of bioflow. And I honestly didn't really rely on those in the in the program. You know, if your liver has the building blocks it needs. We talked about some micronutrients. Essential amino acids are really important for that too. So if it's doing well on its building blocks and its cofactors and the fuel load is not excessive, you know, then it can do its job really well. Right. Yeah. If you're breaking down and utilizing your amino acids. Awesome. So is liver congestion a proper term, do you think, when we're talking about this whole like liver load? <laughs> That's a really good question. I'm laughing because I sat in this very desk and struggled with that for a long time writing the manuscript. Do I call this congestion? Do I call this blocked? You know, what's the best way to express this? So to be really precise biochemically, the the pathology sets in when there's too much uh, oxidized triglyceride trapped between the liver cells. So that's what's going on in a chemical level. And I think it's fair to call it congested or blocked. There, you know, that's just what's going on. You got a filter that's clogged and things cannot flow through it as well as they should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like, I like having the easy version and then the hard version to back <laughs> it up. But that works well for me. Actually, speaking of congestion though, in general, I would say in Chinese medicine, we, I, I think we could like ba- briefly touched on how the liver was so important in ancient medicine. They used to talk about how, and I don't know if it was them or, or not, but they talked about how when the liver's congested, sometimes you'll have congested sinuses. Do you feel like that presents um, clinically or not really? Um, not something I've noticed I, either way. So yeah, no, no input on that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let's talk about sleep because um, people often talk about that the liver does its work in the middle of the night, right? So what do you say about the importance of sleep and the liver doing its job? Yeah. So back to this whole spectrum of fatty liver and being an issue of too little uh, glycogen relative to triglyceride, it seems that the liver has the best potential to rebuild glycogen during the longest time with the least exposure to cortisol. You know, cortisol is a glucocorticoid. It pulls glucose out of storage. So when cortisol is at its lowest point, it's nadir for a long period of time, that's when glycogen is rebuilt. So it takes quality sleep, and it takes some quality interrupted sleep for that to happen. So, yeah, good good long stretches of unbroken sleep and, and lower cortisol levels during the night. Yeah, I love it. So when one thing's out of balance, it usually throws something else out of balance. So it's kind of like this fine-tuning, um, yeah. riding a bicycle, et cetera. So something we struggle with sometimes, you riding know. Riding a unicycle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, did, I uh, cheated on the unicycle and my bicycle analogy. Oops. Um, yeah, the unicycle with the training wheel. So, uh, so you know, the challenge here is that at the end of the day, we have family and friends and we understand like this affects, this isn't just an adult problem, right? This presents in families. And so what is your takeaway or what is your, um, what is your message uh, when things are presenting very clearly in either a child or in a family or how do you improve your overall family lifestyle to maximize or improve liver status so it improves overall health? Yeah. So it's a, it's a huge thing. And mm-hmm. we are seeing liver disease and especially fatty liver showing up in younger and younger people. And it's part of the whole conundrum of this crisis we've had. 
the the term has been called the obesity crisis. Uh, I actually don't like the newer term. They're trying to expand upon it because it's not just about weight. You know, obesity is a function of body weight. And the term that's now being used is over fat. I think that sounds like name calling or something. But mm-hmm. anyway, there's there's your height to weight. And per your height to weight, that's how we define overweight or obesity. But what we're seeing is that the other population are those to where their scale weight seems appropriate, but there's just too much fat mass per their size. So they're, they're not too heavy, but they're carrying too much body fat. So the term that researchers are now collectively using is over fat, and that's to include those who are you know, not too heavy, but not enough lean tissue along with overweight and obese. And the rate of over fat is now per gender and per, per age is, is approaching 90% for some demographic categories. And it's showing up in younger and younger people. And that's, that's when we see liver function change is when there's just too much fat mass relative to the lean body mass. And it's not necessarily fault always, right? It's kind of like we are, we have an environment, sometimes we don't sure. know differently. Um, and so, tr- I mean, I think education's our best defense, right? So that's why we're in this conversation, right? To, to give some awareness. But the first thing is just diet first, right? Um, that's really the takeaway maybe there, unless you have something else to kind of say that should be done. No, no, food is, food is critical. And, you know, I would argue that people often think a lot about particular food categories being bad. Mm-hmm. And for sure, we want to really minimize our intake of processed food. But but past that, you know, foods that our grandparents ate, I would argue that the, the better diet are ones that consume a, a good variety of healthy, unprocessed foods and just quantities that really fit what our body's needs are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Dr. Christensen, um, I think you have this metabolism reset, right? Uh, or you have this quiz some uh, that that talks about the metabolism reset. Is that correct? Can you tell us about that? For sure. So we we put together the whole reset into a easy online program, and we walk people through that. I think we've had about oh fifty five, sixty some odd thousand do it in the last last several months, and it's just really awesome. The, the, the thing that I like the most is when someone comes back like three or six months later and they say, Hey, I did this thing. I took the 28 days and you know, during it, I had these great changes, which was cool. But the most exciting part is when someone says that, yeah, now afterward I'm, I'm doing a lot of the same healthy habits that I did before and they, they're working better than they used to. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my body has changed in some way. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the most exciting transformation. Yeah, I love it. So today we only got through really liver and its relationship to metabolism briefly, right? It's in relationship to thyroid briefly. I hope, Dr. Christensen, you'll agree to come back and talk to us more about adrenals, which is another big area of expertise for you. <laughs> It'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, be game for that. Sounds good. All right. Uh, where do you prefer that people find you online? You know, easiest thing is drdrchristensen.com. Yeah, I'm C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-S-O-N, but yeah. drchristensen.com. And we've got information about the next upcoming free challenge for the program and everything else that's our for all of it. Sounds good. So we'll have that in the show notes. And thank you so much for talking all about liver everything with us today and metabolic flexibility and a little about thyroid and, and all the things. And we'll look forward to having you back. <laughs> Sounds awesome. Thank you so much for having me. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please 
leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stressed Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 